Ask Gavin, objectively, London is a much scarier place than Santa Cruz, California. The following podcast contains... You cannot say filth, flying filth, flying filth in front of people. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. We did made a vampire movie in the 80s and didn't include a sexy buff saxophone solo. What the hell were you thinking? I'm your host Dave Bledsoe and this is episode number 422. Say hello to the night edition of the show. It's a what the hell movie night and part one of Spooktacular 2023. So grab your garlic butter popcorn and let's talk about the Lost Boys. Stay tuned. What the hell are you thinking podcast is brought to you by the Santa Carlo Tourism Board Who want you to know the murder rate isn't that bad Beautiful Santa Carla, California with its ocean views and world famous boardwalk Wants to welcome you back to Santa Carla Now you may have heard rumors about this peaceful seaside community But rest assured that's all they are, nothing but rumors Enjoy our beaches, boardwalk, and Santa Carla's pier Many attractions including our classic carousel and our famous wooden roller coaster all without fear of any danger, supernatural, or man-made. Stop by the Santa Carla Tourism Board on the boardwalk and receive a complimentary crucifix engraved with the Santa Carla Town slogan in Latin, Nemeas Tenabras, on the back. Beautiful Santa Carla. We think we've gotten rid of all the vampires, but just in case, you should stay inside after sundown. Michael and Sam have just moved to Santa Carla, California. They're about to discover its secret. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. Brother Sammy, help me! Stay back! Stay back! What's happening to me, Star? Get yourself a good, sharp stink. Drive it right through his heart. You're a vampire, Michael! My own brother, a damn blood-sucking vampire! Oh, you wait till Mom finds out, buddy! When a vampire buys it, it's never a pretty sight. This one is all on my mother. She's the one that brought the damn books into the house in the first place. Necronomicon Ex Mortis. No, she wasn't a big nonfiction reader. I'm talking about Stephen King books. She loved Stephen King books and had all of them. Now I, being something of a reader myself. We've got comic books, more comic books, and more comic books. No, I'm talking, well, okay, except for Archie. Betty, Veronica, how could anyone possibly choose? Masturbating much? Define much. What I'm trying to tell you is I also read all the Stephen King books at an age which objectively was far too young to read all the Stephen King books. And that's why sometime around 12 years old, I suddenly demanded my parents get me a crucifix. Not just any crucifix, a big one. How big of a crucifix do you want? 
Wasn't big enough and powerful enough to keep vampires safely away. Fucking Salem's lot, man. What a pussy. Now, I wasn't particularly candid about my exact reason for one of the symbol of Jesus' sacrifice from my parents. I just told them that I love God and stuff, which at the time wasn't lying. There were definitely atheists and foxholes, but among 12-year-old boys worried about, worried about vampires, there were no... Heretics and apostates. I suspect my mom probably knew the real reason. She knew I borrowed Salem's Lot after all, and that's probably why they didn't buy me my cross. But they did take me to the mall with my birthday money where I purchased a smaller silver cross on a chain. I chose it because it was the cheapest one with the spookiest looking engraving. That isn't how it works. I was fucking 12 and I wasn't fucking Catholic, so I had to go with what Mr. King had intimated in the text of the novel. The practical upshot was that for about 20 bucks, I was protected from vampires and other creatures of evil until I got bored with it and chucked across in a dresser drawer where it remained for years. I actually think I still have it somewhere buried in a bunch of papers and junk that seems important to, too important to throw away, but not important enough to ever actually do anything with. Like my honorable discharge papers from the military, there's this uh, ring that was given to me by a woman who broke my heart, and uh, oh yeah, my social security card. None of these are actually relevant to my life for the past 30 years or so, but hey, at least when it mattered, I was safe from vampires. Which brings us to this week's topic, and indeed the topic for Spooktacular 2023, and we've called it Gavin St. James Vampire Hunter. We're talking about vampires in general, and this week, we've got, uh... <laughs> Movie night! <laughs> Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Dude, what are we watching? It's a what the hell movie night with 1987's The Lost Boys. To begin with the 1980s, not a great decade for vampire movies. If you're a Gen Xer, go ahead and think of the great vampire movie of the 1980s. I'll wait. So I watched Interview with the Vampire. Eh, wrong, 1994. The 90s were the decade of the vampire movies. I mean, one of the biggest flicks of the 80s was this one. It's spoiling his sleep. Shooter. And don't think people haven't noticed. Am I getting through to you? Over! He is so eccentric. My, my. For Peter Lowe. Oh, Shooter. That's just love. Love? Love. In the big city. Yeah! Don't laugh. I'm a professional. I don't laugh. I'm a vampire! I'm a vampire! I'm a vampire! <laughs> Nicholas Cage. The tortures of the damned! Maria Conchita Alonso. Shoot it. Do it or I'll fire you. Do you understand? <laughs> Not the floor, Alva. And Jennifer Beals. You are so pathetic. <clears throat> Vampires kiss. Strange stuff. I'll never do that again. Jeez. If you have 
not seen Vampire's Kiss, how can I best advise you? Don't bother. Don't bother. It's just Nicolas Cage being very Nicolas Cage, which, if you're into that sort of thing, cool, but not a great vampire movie. Life Force now. Life Force was all right, but vampires in space? That is not a thing. Fright Night was a solid vamp flick, but more of a comedy than a horror movie. But The Lost Boys, Lost Boys, is one of the great vampire movies of all time. And the plot is for straightforward. Divorced mom moves in with her father, taking along her two adult sons. Be getting to cast in a minute, but honestly, with this plot, not casting Linda Lavin is just a goddamn shame. Yeah, there's a new girl in town, and she's looking good. There's a fresh, freckled face in the neighborhood. There's a new girl in town with a brand new style. She was just passing through, but if things work out, she's gonna stay. With Vic Tabak as vampire Mel Sharples, I would watch that movie. I should write that movie. Where was I? Oh, right, the, the, the plot of the Lost Boys. Older brother Michael and younger brother Sam are less than happy about the move and quite dubious about their eccentric grandfather. And as they explore Santa Clara, Michael meets a hot girl. Sam meets two weird brothers whose parents own a comic book store, the Frog Brothers. Michael's hot girl turns out to be a lure for a gang of very hot teenage vampires who give Michael the gift of vampiredom. And Sam and the Frog Brothers have to save him while killing the head, virus, head vampire so Michael won't go full-on evil murder undead. There are murders, shenanigans, an awesome soundtrack, and a scene featuring a shirtless, buff-as-fuck saxophone player doing 80 sax riffs to big jets of flame. Not the best American movie ever made. The script for the movie came from a very unlikely source. First-time screenwriters Janice Fisher and James Jeremias. To be sure, first-time screenwriters get picked up all the time, but The Lost Boys was the first and only script the duo ever sold. Though, Fisher did write an episode of The Golden Girls, season 2, episode 22, in which Rose is convinced that Blanche has become a vampire and convinces Sophia to help her kill Blanche by cutting off Blanche's head and shoving her mouth full of garlic, only to be stopped when Dorothy catches on because the garlic she was planning on using for a big Italian dinner party turns up missing. I don't remember that one. Yeah, that one doesn't sound real. Well, maybe you need to rewatch the season. The script netted the two a cool 400 grand, which with 1985 was rather high for novice screenwriters, but low for established names who can bag millions of dollars for a screenplay. Producers, sales, and organization bought the script and began shopping for a studio to do the production. Eventually, Warner Brothers Studio would come on to do distribution and PR. Originally, 80s movie super director Richard Donner was slated to direct The Lost Boys. Donner was the director behind the classic, classics like Superman, The Omen, Lethal Weapon series, and of course, The Goonies. I live Goonies. I breathe Goonies. According to the American Film Institute.com, quote, in his book, The Changing of Vampire Film and Television, author Tim Kaine noted in the original script, the main characters were fifth and sixth grade school children. The Frog Brothers were eight-year-old Cub Scouts and Star was a boy. Having just directed the successful kids' adventure film Goonies, Donner originally intended to make The Lost Boys in the same vein, unquote. But soon, Donner would dow out, bow out to direct the first lethal weapon, and Joel Schumacher would take over while Donner remained on as executive producer. Joel Schumacher was a well-established director in Hollywood, though the movies he made were not particularly high-profile, or even 
very good. There was the uh, incredible Shrinking Woman and a uh, little gem of a movie called... Uh, DC Cab. They've got class. Where to, baby? Nowhere with you. And they care. Two charge Mr. and Mrs. Tomatsu. $195? They had a lot of luggage. Two. <laughs> we were coming to town, and we know it. Get out of my cab, I'm rich. You don't have to shut us this down. This company is closed, pending further investigation. Make an investment in DC Cab. If I wanted responsibility, I'd have been a damn sex surrogate. Fasten your seatbelt. Because they're back on the street. DC Cab. DC Cab, of course, featured the acting uh, talents of Mr. T before T took up the A-team uh, as B.A. Baracus and began a career of pitying fools. However, in the 1980s, Schumacher's star was on the rise. He directed the 80s classic St. Elmo's Fire in 85 and then got the seat for Lost Boys. He would also go on to succeed Tim Burton in the 1980s Batman franchise, directing Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. Phones with all the nipples. Indeed, Joel Schumacher gave us bat nipples. Empire Online tells the story of how this movie was pitched to Schumacher. Quote, Donner's wife, producer Lauren Schuler, had just produced Schumacher's St. Elmo's Fire and said he'd be perfect for it. At a lunch meeting, however, over Bloody Marys with Warner Brothers executive Mark Kenton, Schumacher was sniffy. I was such an asshole, he recalls. I'd only made three movies, and I said, are you offering me some kid's vampire movie? Mark swallowed the words that were probably, will you shut the fuck up? You're lucky we're asking you. And he said, well, would you do me the honor of reading it? It was so humbling. I said, Mark, I'm so sorry. It's probably the Bloody Mary. Schumacher read the original draft. It was very much Goonies Go Vampire. And he says, charming and adorable and very G-rated and the furthest thing that could be in my consciousness. He was going to turn it down, but then went for a run and a wave of ideas hit him. Instead of a cave, he thought that the vampires could live in an old Victorian hotel that had crumbled during the San Andreas Fault during the 1906 earthquake. They should be in their late teens and look like a British gypsy band riding stripped-down motorcycles, unquote. Veteran screenwriter Jeffrey Bohm was brought on for rewrites, principally to make a kid's movie into something more adult or something more, you know, sexy. Again, from Empire Online, quote, I wanted to make a movie that I would want to see, Schumacher says. The whole vampire thing was he believed in oral sex metaphor anyway. Dracula dresses in dinner clothes, he explains, quite elegant. And then he appears at the windows of beautiful young women where he systematically sucks the fluids from their body, making them his slaves. What else could it be a metaphor for? And vampires could be gorgeous, unquote. With an $8.5 million budget, the search was on to find some sexy vampires. For Michael, a relative unknown was tapped, Jason Patrick, who exuded a troubled good boy gone bad vibe that made you want to run your fingers through his tousled hair right before fucking his brains out. Dave, you okay? What? Dude was fucking hot. For his big bad, Schumacher chose the physical opposite of Patrick. Blonde hair, blue eyes, and... Full-on bad boy fuckability. So it was that Kiefer Sutherland was cast as vamp leader David. Sutherland, who was just coming off his well-received role in Stand By Me. And on the verge of his full star turn in the 80s and 90s, largely on the strength of his work in The Lost Boys. Corey Haim was tapped to play younger brother Sam, and it was The Lost Boys that first paired him with the other Corey, Corey Feldman as Edgar Frog, going on to form the 80s super duo of the two Coreys for better and sadly, for worse. 
Diane West was cast as the boy's mother, Bernard Hughes' grandpa, and Jamie Gertz as the waif star who would lure Michael into the clutches of the vampire gang. The gang itself was full of sexy yet fairly unremarkable period actors, mainly notable for being hot, spooky, and not a little manic in the film. As with any good horror movie, the most vital casting decision isn't about who is in the film, but where the film is shot and set. The Lost Boys fictional Santa Clara, California was played by Santa Cruz, California. Santa Cruz sitting on the northern side of the Monterey Bay, 75 miles south of San Francisco. The small city is famous for its surfing, its scenery, its university, and most importantly for the movie, its boardwalk and pier. Founded in 1907, the Santa Cruz Boardwalk is the oldest surviving amusement park in California, and it contains the Giant Dipper wooden roller coaster and the Louf Carousel, both of which are featured prominently in The Lost Boys. Santa Cruz is also famous for the fog that settles over the city year-round, and speaking from experience, it makes the place spooky as fucking hell when it shows up. Again, from Empire Online, quote, Shooting began at Santa Cruz on the 2nd of June, 1986, and when I got there, I thought, this is exactly where you would go if you were a teenage vampire, Schumacher says, because you've got the boardwalk, the beach, a lot of transient young people, a lot of drug people, and runaway kids all over the place. Santa Cruz had more murders per capita than anywhere else in the United States. True story, that Lots of serial murders in Santa Cruz. That's a whole other podcast topic, but back to the quote. There was a murder outside our hotel while we were preparing for the movie. The Santa Cruz authorities welcomed the crew, but... Didn't want to scare any more tourists away, so the town's on-screen name was changed to Santa Clara, unquote. Of course, we have to talk about the sack scene. an oiled up, ripped as fuck, shirtless saxophone player sings and plays to a raucous crowd on the boardwalk. Tim Capello, who played the sax for Tina Turner for most of her post-Ike career, played the iconic sexy sax man. However, that was not his official title in the movie. It was just Beach Concert Star. From Gizmodo, quote, Capello plays Beach Concert Star, a bare-chested singer-saxophone player performing a fiery cover of The Calls, I Still Believe, as a soon-to-be vampire Michael sees the mysterious star for the first time. For Lost Boys fans and non-fans alike, the scene has become an unforgettable snapshot of a time and place in pop culture history, unquote. Capello had actually come late to an audition for a part in Lethal Weapon, a part which later on went to Gary Busey, <laughs> Can you imagine if Gary Busey had been cast as the sexy saxophone player? No, you can't. We'll go back to Gizmodo. Quote, a Warner Brothers executive took Capello out of the lethal weapon office and brought him to the Lost Boys office. There he met Schumacher, saw his own photo on the wall, and immediately felt fairly confident. I just went in, and it was as simple as him saying, do you want to perform a song in the movie? And I said, sure. We shook on it, and that was that. There was nothing, he said, when I asked about directions from the filmmaker. I made my own clothes, and I just showed up with them. So they gave me no wardrobe. There was just nothing. All he knew was that it was a big party scene, and he wanted the character to pop. I knew that I wanted it to be a little wrong, Capello said. I'd like to make this a little bit funny. Take this a little too far. So I did the tie-dye, which was pink and purple on the pants. Then I... Went a little further with the Home Depot chains, he added. 
There's got to be something wrong about anything that you do. Otherwise, it's just plain old cliche. The result was a look nearly as memorable as his performance. Oh, and don't forget about the oil. You always oiled up, Capello said. Every night with Tina, I would oil up. Just always what you did. It was like you were wearing a shirt. You are wearing a flesh shirt. And it was shiny, unquote. And going back to Empire Online about that infamous scene, quote, Shooting the Boardwalk concert for the sequence in which Michael meets the vampires was a riot, according to Schumacher. Hundreds of onlookers partying while topless saxophonist Tim Capello gyrated on stage. The place stunk of pot. People clambered onto the stage only to be shoved off by cinematographer Michael Chapman, who didn't want his shot ruined. Hot. Oh, so hot. It being Hollywood and it being the 1980s, things naturally got a little crazy of the cast as well. Going back to Empire Online, quote, An electricity rippled through the cast with some on-screen dynamics mirrored on set. Sutherland was a natural-born partier, instinctively becoming the leader of the Lost Boys off-camera and unwittingly influencing his outfit when it came to showing off for a young lady who caught his eye during the first night of the shoot. He lost control of the dirt bike on the beach, crashing. With his lift, left wrist badly broken, Schumacher just put him in black gloves for the production. And the party in a nearby Santa Cruz Holiday Inn, where most of the cast and crew were shacked up, was just as riotous. Alex Winter, who played vampire Marco, has described it as a rave with crazy shit going on in every room. Schumacher's lips are sealed. Take a bunch of 13-year-olds and a bunch of 18-year-olds and put them in a hotel, he says. Of course, there had to be chaperones for the 13-year-olds, but anyway... I'm not going to say another word, unquote. The movie was a hit when it opened in 1987. The box office for the first weekend of release hit $5.2 million. It went on to make $32 million in theaters on an $8 million budget. And this doesn't factor in subsequent video sales, which weren't as closely tracked back then. But suffice to say, the VHS was in a lot of people's homes and a stalwart of late 80s and 90s movie nights. Critically, it was liked, but not loved. Quoted again from the AFI, quote, Critical reception was generally positive, though often with reservations. In, in a 31 July of 87 Washington Post review, Rita Kempley called the film an off-key, but often funny mix of teen romance and pre-teen adventure. However, added, but this faltering fantasy has more in common with Goonies than with a really first-rate vampire lore. In a 31 July of 87 Washington Post review, Desson Howe praised cinematographer Michael Chapman's camera work, specifically the eerie planes of light and dark and bat-like swooping camera. Additionally, Howe applauded the hybrid horror and suburban comedy quality established in the first half of the story. However, Howe bemoaned the loss of this quality later in the narrative, where he argues that the film loses courage or imagination. Roger Ebert echoed these cinemas in the 31 July 1987 Chicago Sun-Times review where he declared, There's some good stuff in the movie, including a cast that's good right down the line and a willingness to have some fun with teenage culture in the mass murder capital. But when everything is all over, there's nothing to leave the theater with. No real horrors, no real dread, no real imagination, just technique and service of the formula, unquote. Variety was somewhat less enthusiastic, calling it, quote, a horrifically dreadful vampire teen ploitation entry that daringly advances the theory that all those missing children pictured on garbage bags and milk cartons are actually the victims of blood-sucking bikers, unquote. Garbage bags? There were no missing teens on garbage bags. I mean, who would fucking do that? You're intimating that these kids are already dead and stuffed in a garbage bag somewhere on a fucking interstate, which, hey, most of them were, but still, you can't just come out and say it like that. 
let's I'm gonna go back to the thing now. But the reviewers in the genre, the sci-fi horror genre, loved the movie. Again from AFI, quote. The Lost Boys received significant attention from the Academy of Science, Fiction, and Fantasy and Horror Films, winning the 1988 Best Horror Film Award, as well as nominations for Costume and Makeup, Best Performances by Young Actor Haim and Best Supporting Actor Hughes. Additionally, Feldman won Young Artist Awards for Best Young Actor in a Horror Motion Picture and Teenage Favorite Horror Drama Motion Picture, while Haim was nominated alongside Feldman for Best Young Actor in a Horror Motion Picture category, unquote. And the movie is now not just considered a cult classic, but a genuine classic classic in the vampire canon. It had tremendous cultural impact on how vampires were portrayed in movies and television going forward. Josh Whedon credits the movie with forming his visions of what vampires should be like in his Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And if you think about it, you could see Kiefer Sutherland's David hanging out with James Marster's Spike. Although I strongly suspect the two would fucking hate each other. The movie also quietly helped shape other cultural narratives as well. Entertainment Weekly Online had a cast retrospective which opened with this quote from Alex Winter. Quote, I think it's the most successful interpretation of all the things director Joel Schumacher did well, which was fashion and music and understanding actors and story and style. And I'm just going to call a spade a spade homoeroticism and sexual ambiguity and sexual adventurousness, unquote. Yeah, looking back on the movie through the lens of a 50-something-year-old me, I see the point. At the time, I lacked an understanding of what was going on in the world in 1987. and was just utterly oblivious to an 18-year-old me because the Lost Boys is gay. It's like super gay. Quoting now from Queerty.com, quote, The spooky 1987 classic has long been heralded as a queer favorite. And as an AIDS epidemic raged on and Ronald Reagan's conservative moralism further ostracized the other, it wasn't a stretch to read the film's undead bad boys with their leather get-ups and embrace of a chosen family as stand-in for the gay community in the late 1980s. The metaphor becomes even clearer in retrospect, especially when you consider the Lost Boys director was the late Joel Schumacher, a.k.a. the gay filmmaker who gave Batman suit nipples and somehow made Phantom of the Opera even campier. Sure, we gays have trained ourselves to read between the lines over the years to find ourselves in stories that weren't explicitly about us, but Schumacher himself even acknowledged it, clarified a few years back that the film was about the fear that we have of the other, those who live outside of the mainstream, unquote. And brightwalldarkroom.com has this to say, quote, The relationship of Michael to these outlying roguish men is the central focus of the entire film. We even find out later that Star is not so much a love interest for David, but rather someone he has decided to use as a sexual lure. She serves as bait, not only to ensnare Michael, but to fulfill his transformation upon her death. In other words, the only way Michael can become truly lost boy is by literally killing his heterosexual urges, a theory which is alluded to during his initiation of the Lost Boys' den. After drinking the bottle of blood, Michael falls into a trance and we see Star's face, superimposed face, peering back at him, which hints at his attraction to her. She's quickly replaced by an image of David's smiling face as, a seduct as he seductively whispers Michael's name over and over. Unquote. And many writers noted that Corey Haim's Sam was heavily coded as gay from his wardrobe choice to his choice of bedroom wall art. Come on, that poster of Rob Lowe? 
<laughs> yeah. No, no, no boy in no straight boy in 1987 had that particular poster of Rob Lowe on their walls, shirtless, almost rubbing his nipple. It's it's gay. And that's great. I fucking love it. I can't believe I didn't see it back then that I didn't see it till years later shocks me. But also, hey, I missed Rob Halford of Judas Priest being like uber gay. I just thought that the leather daddy thing was totally fucking metal. Oh, you poor, poor dear. The soundtrack of The Lost Boys fucks hard. Meaning you could put that on if you were trying to get lucky with anyone even a little bit goth. And before you knew it, you were both doing it real nasty. Cry Little Sister by Gerard McCann is a fuck song by any standard. So long as you don't think too hard about any other connotations in the lyrics. There isn't a bad song on the soundtrack album. Everything about the Lost Boys holds up as a movie. But the biggest question for the purposes of this spooktacular is simply, does it hold up as a horror movie? Let's ask the spool.net. Quote, it would be fair to say that the success of the Lost Boys helped to usher in the era of MTV horror in which far more energy was put, in, was put into pulling together an aggressively attractive cast than trying to make something scary and exciting. It would not be fair, however, to minimize Joel Schumacher's role in making horror. Fine, horror comedy for all the pedants out there. More accessible and for acknowledging that, lo and behold, teen girls turned out and continue to be a key marketing demographic, whether boys like it or not. Through the original audience for The Lost Boys was probably the closer to the dorky frog brothers than frock coat wearing creatures of the night. It was nice to dream of not having to ever look back or look forward. No worries, no disappointments, no heartbreak, no loss. Just a world that shivers at your pleasure as you, as you fly over a dark and endless sea, unquote. For pure horror fans, the kind of people who think The Exorcist was fine, but I guess it could be a little scarier. The Lost Boys falls short of the fear factor that other Vampflix show. It's no Nosferatu, not even Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Hell, the movie version of Salem's Lot was a lot scarier than The Lost Boys, but The Lost Boys had some solid horror movie moments. The scene where David turns Michael's noodles into maggots, solid jump scare. The bridge dangle was generally scary, not spooky, but scary. The chase and kill of the security guard, what that's what people wanted a good vamp kill, and the bonfire beach kill was fucking terrifying by any measure. David biting that dude's skull? Fuck yeah. And they toned that scene down a lot. The original cut had Sutherland eating the head like a cake. I want to see that. The movie is branded as horror comedy, and it is, but the comedy never overtakes the spookiness and is used just at the right moments to relieve the tension. All in all, the movie holds up as a teen horror movie and earns its place in the vamp canon. A good vampire movie has to be a lot of things. Scary, sexy, seductive, it should allude to that desire in so many people to embrace their inner darkness, to take immortality and damn the cost. It's just... It should suggest that evil is beautiful without ever really saying that evil is like, you know, beautiful. A good vampire movie should leave the viewer happy the vampire is dead, but also a little sad that they're gone because in the end, we were quietly rooting for the vamp to win. 
because deep inside, so many of us would give a lot to sleep all day, party all night, and never grow old, even knowing that the price for that is our immortal souls. To be a beautiful undead creature of the night, feasting and fucking our way through the world for all of eternity is something many folks would have a hard time turning down. And hey, black, very flattering on almost any body type. Now, sure, you would have to turn in your Sealy Posturepedic for a wooden coffin, but I would think that would be great for the back. But the biggest thing is you want to be made a vampire while you're still young and hot. Because no one wants to be a fat middle-aged vampire because we'd have to feast on our age on our age group because you're just going to stand out as the old guy at the club, even if you're a thousand-year-old blood-drinking monster. Oh my God, can you just see a 45-year-old guy as a vampire wearing Crocs and cargo shorts just... Thinking, oh, the, the music in this club is way too loud. I'm going to go home now. And, I'm not, and oh, God, it's, you're, you're not sexy. You're not scary. You're just <laughs> mowing your lawn at midnight for the rest of eternity. Yeah, you really want to become a vampire when you're young and hot. On Oops! The Podcast, join me, comedian Giulio Gallarotti, as I examine everyday life, the mistakes, the bad decisions, the goals, the jokes, the social engagements, and all things in between. I'm joined every week by producer and personal confidant, Ryan Lynch, various other comedians for witty, candid, and intoxicating conversation. Our listeners love Oops! for sophisticated banter, aka your mom could listen, and many feel like they're in the room with us chopping it up with old pals. You can find every episode of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. That is it for the show this week. Oh, it's Spooktacular 2023, Gavin St. James, Vampire Hunter. You know, we just mostly call that because it really annoys the shit out of Gavin. Over the next month, we're going to be looking at all sorts of vampires from the very real to the very silly and then wrapping up the month with, bye. we're going to bring on a vampire expert to talk about her experience chasing vampires since she was a little girl. All right, technically she just read a lot of vampire, a lot of Anne Rice and watched a lot of vampire movies. But hey, that's what the budget could afford. Now, speaking of low rent and insufficient, rate and review this show so other people can find our efforts. Low rent and somewhat insufficient. If you would like to drop us a dollar for garlic and crucifixes to keep Gavin out there on the hunt hit us up at patreon.com slash what the hell podcast do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing credits otherwise he will be forced to withhold the dark gift of immortality for me once again and so for me Dave I ain't afraid of no vamp let's uh producer I again protest using my name in association with this puerile series title Gavin and all the fictional Lost Boys on this show, we want to say, say hello to the night. And remember to ask about his family because it's a polite thing to do. And we'll see you all next week.
What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Sacramento, California. Yeah, yeah.